Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to all of our Faster Masters out there in the audience. I think this is the turning, one of the key turning points in the year. We have a thing in New Zealand that the 1st of September is the first day of spring, officially. Oh, okay. I, in the UK, they don't have an official, everyone's like, going, is it here yet? Did it go away? Did it come back? And of course, you've got a Labor Day weekend. Yes, it actually feels like autumn today for the first day, right? <laughs> but... Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You just get that little sense of the air and it's either a chill in it or a smell. Yeah, there's even some leaves. There are a couple of leaves even changing a little bit, but, you know, it is September 1st. <laughs> this so. is one of the reasons why I will never go and live in Canada. You don't have enough, enough of the year that's not freaking freezing. It's not freezing all the time. Depends. I know it's <laughs> not. It's just not enough of the year for me. Yes, yes, yes. You need some more months. I need some more months. Now take a look at this awesome photograph. This is sent, Elizabeth Bugert took this, and these are the volunteers who were helping out at the European Rowing Championships. And it's just a lovely picture of them all lined up in their uniforms. But what I thought was so insightful was in her post, she said, if you want a ringside seat of a really top rowing event, go and volunteer. She said, you know, you generally have to get yourself there. You usually get fed and watered during the day while you're there. And of course, oftentimes you're close, close to the, you know, to the action, mm -hmm. which is, you know, why wouldn't you want that if you're a Rome fan? So if you can't afford tickets to go, consider volunteering. Yeah, that's a great tip, actually. Hello to Denise, who's watching us live. Nice to see you. Now, being as it's the first uh, podcast of September, we're doing this at an earlier time. It's for our European viewers and listeners. Hello to you all. Please tell us in the comments where you're listening from. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask Marlene to run through the September Faster Masters programs and what we've got for people who are paying subscribers. And the reason we do this is we want to alert you, if you're not yet a paying subscriber, as to what you might be benefiting from should you decide to try a training program with us? Yes, for so for September, um, actually our program has three different tracks to it. Um, one is the focus on 1K because um, we do have faster masters who are preparing for um, FISA World Masters and also um, in New Zealand, they are also preparing for their master's national championships in September. So um, that kind of focuses on the people who have a peak for 1K racing in September. And the 5K program focuses on training for longer distance races, uh, be it in an October or a November peak. So September is a, a pretty key month from a training point of view, um, you know, you really want to get in some good quality endurance training during September um, so that you're, you're, you're kind of brought your fitness up to a higher level as you're going into October. And the third program is the program that, that specifically focuses on the head of the Charles peak, um, which, you know, the timing of that program is a little bit different just because we know the exact date that the head of the Charles happens in the third week of October. So, so the se September work has some similarities to the 5K, um, and also has some differences simply because of the timing that the regatta tends to be a little bit earlier. And um, the 1K strength program is really focused on maintaining strength um, coming off of August, because right now, you know, the volume as I were getting ready to peak for 1K. So it's all about maintaining strength and, and keeping sharp on the water. And the 5K strength program um, 
is focused on keeping a really good strength base because this is also a time when um, you're doing probably a bit more volume on the water. So the water workouts probably take a bit more time and energy. So the strength program is, you know, there to be kind of an underlying base program um, compared to other times of the year when there's a greater emphasis on strength. We're kind of in a maintenance phase right now. Um, our technical program, um, Rebecca did a great article called Expect the Unexpected, which has some really um, cool tales about head racing and things that can happen and how you might deal with some unexpected situations and still come out ahead. And our performance module uh, is about how to manage rowing blisters. And, and there's an entire ebook on hand care and managing blisters, which is something we all deal with in the sport of rowing. And our rowing lifestyle article is um, diet tips for longevity. And these are some of a, kind of a collection of things that come from people who live in the blue zones of the world. And the blue zones are those areas where people tend to live the longest on the planet. And last but not least in the bonus, um, we have announced the new Faster Masters Rowing app that is now available um, for the iPhone and the iPad at this point. And this was a you know really, really big project that we've been working on um, for the last year. So we're really happy to announce that and tell us a little bit about it, Rebecca. Well, it, I wasn't going to mention it on the podcast so i'm gonna just go zip for now when it's in android then i'll tell everyone about it but if you want to go discover i won't stop you we we kind of wanted to let our paying customers get first dibs do you say that in in north america first dibs? Yeah, 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 yeah. now thank you for that what a marathon and um i'm really looking forward to moving into that program myself i'm heading off to the gym this afternoon with um my former doubles partner to try out the weights we got a question from a listener this week, um, which was really interesting. And I felt it was an important thing to uh, bring to the fore. This person asks, I've got a question. What rate should I target for the race? They're training for a long distance head race. Uh, she's a woman in her 60s rowing a single skull. I feel like 28 to 30 is a good target, but I'm new to racing singles. And I often hear people say they row at 26 to 28 for singles head races. I know I should be watching splits to determine the optimal rate, but rowing at lower rates also increases the load. And sometimes you have to believe in yourself and not be afraid to push the rate a bit. As she sensibly says, now's the time for me to work the rates in the plan to get efficient at 28 to 30. But if rowing at a lower rate is perfectly normal, I'm not sure. I want to take that into consideration when I'm lowering the longer uh, stroke rates. Maybe my question is, what's the normal race rate for 60-year-old masters? Honey, there ain't no normal. <laughs> it's all That's different. It, it's absolutely, yeah, it, it's, 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 I mean, I like the way she's thinking about this. I think she's thinking about it in, in the right way. Um, but it's it's extremely individual. Um, you know, depends on your size. It depends on your fitness. It depends on the wind that you're rowing in. I mean, it depends on a, a lot of factors. Um, and it depends what helps you go the fastest, you know, because you have to think about, you know, I, I think if you look at it from the point of view of, how do I need to row to maintain the best average speed for the duration of the race? You know, that because, you know, it's a time trial. So if you can row it pretty evenly, you know, it's going to maybe give you your best result. Not that everybody always rows it evenly and, you know, people, people have varied results. Right. But mm. um, this is why you have to practice trials before race day and 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 you have to practice these things in you know in your training to actually see you know there's no sense to row 28 if you're not moving your boat better than when you're rowing 26 so you know you want to kind of balance out what what your efficiency is so you know if you're if you're rowing 
26 and that's a really good competitive rate for you and you're moving the boat well and then say you try to row 28 and it's just taking too much energy and you're really not moving faster doesn't really make sense to row 28. Um, so you you know that's this is why we do trials that's a really important reason just to just to try to you know you've got to work you know mess things up in trials rather than messing them up in the race you know i mean that's what practice trials are for um and i think if you follow the workouts <clears throat> you'll see you'll see the differences like okay if there's a, a, a say a workout where the rate bumps up two for a minute or two minutes and you see oh i can handle that pretty well or oh no that that feels a little bit beyond where you are right now you know stick with what's efficient and and just kind of keep keep nudging keep nudging it up because you know the the goal isn't the stroke rate the goal is moving the boat better so you have to look at what moves the boat better as an example from the august program there was a workout which was four lots of one minute at mid-race pace with 30 seconds rest. Um, it was done multiple times. And I did the workout with someone I'm not used to rowing with. My regular doubles partner is off at her daughter's hockey championships. The whole of New Zealand secondary schools hockey are all in Taupo and Napier this week. And uh, poor her. She has one daughter who's in one competition in one town and the other daughter is in another competition in another town. So she, she and her husband are like their tag team commuting. Anyway, uh, so I was rowing with someone new, um, skillful athlete, fit, you know, no problems there. But of course, she and I were not used to rowing together. And it was very noticeable in doing these. The first one we did was around rate 26, which is definitely not my normal mid-race pace for a 1K piece. And by the last set, we were going out at 32, 33, which for me would be just a little bit, that would be more normal what I'd be looking mm -hmm. for. And so even just over the course of a single workout, we didn't deliberately go out to pick a rate and chase that rate. We went out at the rate that we could manage for our quality of blade work and for our fitness and also recognition that early in the morning, generally I find my ratings are lower than they are when you're a bit more awake later in the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think that's a really good point. And and with ratings, now you were rowing with a different partner, and perhaps your release timing was slightly different, right? Because that's that's one of the I think when when individuals look at rating and they're like, oh, I can't get the rating. Okay, you know, look at your release timing first, because if you're too long, that's going to bring that's going to drop your stroke rate. So you know, correct release timing and making that turnaround efficiently also really affects your ability to row a beat or two higher. So, um, so with your, uh, the double partner you worked with, perhaps if that doubles partner started matching your release timing a little bit better, oh, see, maybe the rating came up, came up, came up too. So, you know, that, that also has a big effect on the rating because if somebody is just too in the water too long, I mean, that's just, just going to, that's like drops your stroke rate like a brick, right? Because you, you just, you can't, you don't have time to get the hands away. You don't have time to get the body angle, you know, and, and that's at the release, you know, that's where you have to make that turnaround to um, sharpen up the stroke rate. So, you know, that's the, so for our, our listener who's sending us our question, this could be another thing like, have somebody video record you and see what's going on at at the release and you know are you feathering on the on the drive are you feathering still in the water are you or are you getting the blade out and making that turnaround quickly so that that's going to have a big effect on your stroke rate too so it's something you know other things to look at i think the key thing that underlies all of this is you need to be alert to how the boat feels and how it's moving. And this is something that you can train yourself to do. Just how does this feel? Does the boat feel like it's running smoothly? You know, are my, is my blade work clean? Does this feel efficient? Can I reduce one micro fraction of a movement so that I am being more smooth 
and my my movement so i'm not wasting energy on unnecessary movement so you know real simple things like when my hand is coming along into the catch can i just square the blade and lift my handle or am i coming to the catch lowering the handle squaring the blade low and then lifting my hand so that tiny little micro adjustment save that energy put it into something else yeah absolutely and and if you have some kind of a, a monitor in your boat that's giving you these readings data readings like i love you using meters per second for this reason you know that you know look at your stroke rate how many meters per second are you traveling i mean it's just kind of a it's just kind of a different way to look at it like we get hooked on 500 meter splits all the time but meters per second you know kind of is it 3.1? Is it 3.5? Is it, you know, whatever it is. But when you make little changes, you you can, you, I don't know, I think it just has a little different effect mentally. It's just a different, slightly different perspective. They all give you, they all give you those measurements. They're all equally valuable. But um, I think if you're playing with stroke rate, looking at your meters per second can, can help you. Okay. I'm rowing, like I'm rowing 28. Am I moving the boat more meters per second than at 26 or is it the same you know you want to balance that energy output and efficiency it's a much more sensitive measure even though just like 500 meter splits it's rounded usually it's rounded over three strokes so it's an average of the previous three strokes which is why when you go off the start it takes a while for the you know to it for the rating and the splits to reflect what your actual boat speed is but mid-race you know it's pretty consistent. It's got a bulk of data that is averaging and you should be being pretty consistent at that point. So I find the meters per second is much more sensitive as a measure. So the difference between 3.1 and 3.3 meters per second for me is actually a lot in my single. Um, so yeah, I, I just encourage you to experiment with it. And it's a bit like on the erg as well. Some people say, you know, I don't always like chasing a split, so I'll change it to watts. Mm -hmm. And again, watts is a much more sensitive and variable measure. Um, and it's very hard to be really consistent with watts. Whereas with your 500 meter split, if you're a reasonably well-trained athlete, you've been doing it for a few years, you know a split and you can probably stick on it, maybe going up one and down one, but you know it won't make a lot of change. Now, our sponsor this week is the Rowing Directory. This is a project that I started on my podcast website, which is rowing.chat. And if you go there and click on the menu that says directory, you'll see that I've been collecting and curating a list of all of the businesses that I can find in the whole world who sell products suitable for the rowing world. And so you've got a diverse range of things from um, gifts through to accessories to electronics to data to oars boats you know shoes you name it they're all there and in fact this week i was i found a new company out of the czech republic who are building a new sculling erg and uh, they have submitted a listing which i will publish later on this week so do go in there check back regularly because there are always new people up there and now we're so international. Increasingly, you can buy across borders, not always, um, but with an awful lot of these products, it really isn't a bother if there doesn't happen to be a um, agent reselling in your uh, area, your country. So go to www.rowing.chat forward slash retailer to find the rowing directory. Now, this week, we decided that our topic should be about durable equipment. So we're going to talk boats and oars principally. And it was a really good question. What is the most durable boat? And why is durability a, you know, an attribute that we seek out in our equipment? Now, I don't know if any of you own your own boats. We know a lot do. Or if you're on a club committee where part of your job is to provide the equipment for your club members. What are the criteria you use when you're choosing what to have in your boat fleet? So at a very high level, we in my club look at the spread of athletes who are in our current membership. And bear in mind from year to year, this can change substantially. So we look at their height, 
whether they're men or women, and their weight. And then the third thing we look at is their skill level in rowing. You know, are they beginners or are they more skillful? So as an easy example, we spend a lot of time rowing in quads. And we have a Cox quad, which is one we use for our beginners. When you are learning, you get the coach in the boat coxing you. It's actually um, a wooden boat with a carbon exterior. So if you look inside, it has open decks. And you can see the struts of wood that make up the shoulders um, and the cross bracing. And it's an old boat. It's a very durable boat. Um, it has lasted for a very long time. When you progress out of that, you'll move up to another quad that we have, which is about a 70 kg boat. The hull shape has a very slightly flatter base. And we it's easy to sit as a result. And it is coxless, so it's steered from inside the boat. It's easily good enough to take to a regatta. I've raced it and won in it. It's, it's a good boat. Um, but it has a, a, um, a quality which I call forgiveness. So if you are not quite together at your finishes, as Marlene was saying earlier, it won't lurch violently from one side to the other. And this is a reflection of the hull-shaped design more than the materials it's made out of. Moving on from there, we then have another boat which um, has a different hull shape. It's a slightly narrower hull, slightly more V-shaped, particularly in the bow. And this boat is hard to sit level unless you have good blade work skills. It also has a habit of weather cocking into the wind. So unless you're um, very good at timing your release together and controlling that with a high balance with none of the oars touching the water, you will find that the boat will tend to steer towards the wind. It drags itself that way. And it's to do with, again, it's hull design. Um, and that is better suited to more skilled rowers. And so here is just in a suite of, a, you know, a single boat class of quads, the, the range of different boats that we choose to have so as a committee we know we need to have beginner boats and we need to have racing boats and we need to have racing boats that are suitable for slightly less and slightly more skilled athletes then it comes to the durability and modern boats nowadays are built out of carbon and kevlar pretty much carbon fiber and they still have, a lot of them still have, um, you know, struts, which are made of wood. They're just covered in carbon uh, for rigidity. And carbon Kevlar boats are generally made with a honeycomb sandwich. So the way they build them is there is a layer, which is probably about four or five millimeters thick, which is a, it is literally a honeycomb. Um, and this provides a lot of the rigidity and it is coated on the outside with carbon fiber. And then Kevlar is what they usually use down the hull. So sometimes when you look inside a boat, you can see there is a yellow strip of woven, it's fabric when it it's first, first appears. Um, so it's pre-impregnated carbon and Kevlar. Um, and then they cook it in an oven at a high temperature and that forms, it makes it go solid. Um, but the yellow stuff is the Kevlar, the black stuff is carbon. And carbon comes literally as a woven fabric. So it's called carbon weave. And it comes in a lot of pretty patterns. So you can get it in a herringbone weave, or you can get it in a checkerboard weave. Um, and then quite often boat builders will paint the outside of the boat. That they generally do this for several reasons, partly because it looks nicer and you then can't see the joins and the overlaps in the um, carbon fabric layers because those look less attractive. And then they, over the top of the paint, they then put something called gel coat, which is a transparent layer. And that is what provides the outermost protection for the hull of your boat. So back to durability. I think most boats are built to an extremely high standard and 
the materials that they're made out of generally reflect how heavy the boat is going to be when it's finished. And that means when it's got all of its fitments in there as well. So the slides and the seats um, and the riggers and the foot stretchers and everything. Most of you know that for racing at international regattas, the International Rowing Federation, FISA, have determined a minimum boat weight. The reason for this was inevitably, it was a response to something that uh, one country did that tried to give them a racing advantage by rowing in lighter boats. And I think I'm right in saying it was East Germany and they built boats that were only designed to be used at one regatta and they basically became soft and started falling apart after one regatta but they were super light and of course saving a few kilograms in a boat means that you know power to weight ratio of the athletes in that crew they get an advantage so minimum boat weights are published you can find them on the world rowing website so for a single skull it's 14 kilograms and when you buy a new boat the vast majority of boat builders nowadays both give the boat a serial number so that they know exactly what it was when it was built. They can look it up in their records and they will also publish two other bits of data. One is the weight of athlete it's designed for. And I'll discuss that another time. And the other is the actual weight of the boat. And this is usually on a little plate. So it's um, a little aluminium plate that has usually etched into it. And it'll either be in the cockpit right up in the bows or it'll be in the footwell, um, particularly if you're, you're in a single. But it's visible and you should be able to read that. Sometimes when you go to regattas, particularly when you go to elite regattas, one of the obligations of the regatta organizer is to check boat weights, that you are not racing in underweight boats. If you race in an underweight boat, you have to carry extra weight. So very occasionally I've actually rowed in boats where in between your feet round, you know, where your foot stretcher attaches between your heels, there are little circular lead weights, which they add to underneath or through that bolt that affixes your foot stretcher down onto the hull of the boat. And they add, you know, a few extra ounces um, to make sure that the boat is up to minimum weight. So say if it's 300 grams under and it's you know a double, each of you will have you know 150 grams of additional weight in your footwell to make sure that your boat's legal. And they weigh boats by having you know a big chain and pulley system. Um, they'll hoist your boat off the ground and then they have a, it's just, um, uh, I can't remember what they call those, those weights where the, the wire extends and it's usually a circular dial. Um, but anyway, so you must have a minimum weight boat. Otherwise, you risk being, you know, you're being disqualified and your result being declared invalid. Coming back to durability, when you're buying boats, we all know that the learn to row boats are typically designed to a different hull shape. They have a slightly flatter base. If you look at the underside of the boat, it's usually flatter rather than completely circular down the length of the hull. And if you look at boat builder websites where they give the specifications, these boats will often have a above minimum weight. So a learn to row single typically can be 16 or 17 kilos as opposed to 14. And I think the reason for this is that there's more material in the hull. So it weighs a little bit more and I think also that the more material is an implication that, in fact, it is a little bit more durable. One of the stiffness uh, features of a rowing boat uh, that has massively improved the durability in recent years is the flange on the side of the hull where wing riggers attach. So, the side mounted riggers, which are called Euro riggers in North America, were the traditional way of putting an outrigger onto a rowing boat. And they generally attach where the wooden shoulders, which are the bracing struts that go the complete half circle of the um, inside of the hull, they attach there because those are the strongest points on the sides of the boat. And you had two or three stay riggers. In the move to making wing riggers, which mount across the top of the um, hull, 
what the boat builders did was instead of having a side that ends vertically, it ends with a 90 degree lip or flange. And it's through the flange that you bolt on your wing rigger. Those flanges add an enormous amount of rigidity, I believe, to the actual boat hull. And it allowed the boat builders to remove the shoulders, the wooden shoulders that used to go underneath and around the hull for the riggers to attach to. And that made an incredible change to what they could do inside the cockpit. You will notice nowadays that fewer and fewer people have slide bites on the back of their calves. This is because they were able to mount the slides much wider because they didn't have to accommodate these shoulders going through the sides of the boat. And so although seats are the same width, the undercarriage of the seat now is typically wider and particularly for women, I'm speaking for myself because I know in my case this is true, I can now get my legs flat and my calves fit between the ends of the slides. So little things like that aren't about durability, but they are about the construction and design and layout of an interior of a boat. And so durability comes back to mostly, I think, the hull design and the materials that are used to construct each individual boat. Very few boats are made of wood nowadays. If you do have the pleasure of rowing in um, an older wooden boat, you will feel it move in a very different way from a carbon fiber boat. They are generally less rigid. Um, even if you row Carl Douglas singles, which look wood they're actually a wood veneer over a carbon kevlar hull so actually they're not full wood construction um but i know that there are people who row in i think they're king singles mm -hmm. which are still made of wood and there are other you know traditional boat builders if you buy a whitehall skiff if you buy a saint ale skiff these are all wood construction boats and they're built um in a clinker fashion which is overlaying planks that that overlap um and and again, are they're solid, a little bit heavier, um, and extremely durable. So, Marlene, let's move on to talking about oars. What do you know about oar weights and durability? Because you would have learned to row with wooden oars, I'm sure. Yes, actually, I, I did learn it in wooden boats with wooden oars. But just to backtrack as a last note on. Um, boats that if you are interested in buying a boat and you're interested in a particular builder at on their website look at the different price options and the de descriptions of those boats because oftentimes you'll still get the same you you can also usually get the same hull design and the price and the durability is going to depend on the materials so um, some builders have choices of different hull designs and some builders, you can buy the same hull design, but the boat is made of different materials. So that's some of the little research that goes into buying, buying a new boat. And, um, well, with, with oars, um, you know, the advent of composite materials obviously, um, changed oar construction quite a bit and, you know, croaker oars were uh, very, very early ore makers that went to composite ores. And I can remember it was one of my projects in high school back in like 1975 that I wrote to Croker Ores and asked them to send me all their information about their ores. And it was one of my school projects back in this. In, uh, it must have been like 1978 because I learned how to row in 77. So, so anyway. Did Howard Croker reply to you? Yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, okay. I don't think I still have those things, but... They, they sent me back of this information about the oars and I did a whole, you know, project on it at school. It was really quite fun. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously, you know, Concept 2 started building composite oars um, back in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, in fact, I think in 19, it was probably 1982. I actually visited their original barn where they had the bicycle, you know, they had the bicycle, bicycle machine that, that spun the tape 
and you know they they spun the shafts just like people make ski poles now and they but they did it via by a bicycle um and you know over over the years the the, the evolution of different ores and different stiffnesses um relies on on the materials and how they lay up lay up the shafts for example so when they um you know wanted to make the skinny shaft which is a, a shaft that has you know they wanted to develop a shaft for example that that they could put extra soft flex into to accommodate the larger blade so that it you know changes the the feel at the entry um they had to go to a, a new type of composite material so that they could spin a shaft that had a smaller diameter. And um, how they lay up the longitudinal with the, the material that, you know, they actually roll all of this on a big, um, it's a big like round, looks like a great big round pencil, but you know, they lay up yeah. the materials flat and then they, you know, they roll it on this um, very long metal solid almost pipe-like looking things and they all go go into ovens but their choice of materials will affect the weight the diameter of the shaft the flat the flex so um they have you know the the ore builders now you know if you want a little bit heavier built ore or you want a more recreational ore it's probably going to be built with a little bit heavier stronger material so it might be a little bit heavier shaft versus a very lightweight shaft, um, which the high performance shafts um, are traditionally lighter. They're made of probably more carbon. Um, and you need a lot more skill to row with those oars. You know, if you're rowing with a high level pair of, um, for example, like the Croker Arrow is a very elite oar. It's a beautiful oar, but you need, you need some pretty good skill to row well with this ore because it's a very sensitive, just like boats, very sensitive. So, you know, you have to work on your blade work skills. Um, but, you know, all ore builders have ranges of ores that you can buy. And, you know, the price might be um, based on the materials and, you know, built more durable. For example, like Bantam blades, Concept 2 sells the, the sort of a recreational blade you know, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a molded extrusion um, versus being a blade that's hand built with carbon with, you know, cut out by hand by every person. Um, you know, it's a molded blade. So, I mean, you could hit rocks with it. You can hit all kinds of stuff with it. You're not going to really damage the blade. So if you've got a blade that needs to, you know, be in a learn to row program or a very rocky rowing condition where you don't want to be hitting things with your blade all the time. You know, you want to look for the construction of the blades and the, and the shafts. Yeah. Typically when you buy oars, they will ask if you want them stiff, medium or soft. Those are the, the three grades and the way they lay up the blade in order to create stiffness is very straightforward. But if you don't know it, so if you've ever broken a blade, and it's sheared straight off. You can look down the diameter, you can actually see the internal circumference. And the blade does not have the same material all the way around. So when the blade is square in the water, the leading edge and the back edge are where they put more materials. There'll be an extra strip of carbon that goes down opposite each other, two sides of the circle. And if you have stiff blades, they'll get three layers, medium will be two and soft maybe one um, so that there is less longitudinal rigidity and that's all it is so although the soft blades may be marginally lighter they have more flex in them and so that's how they manage to make the stiffness noticeably variable if you've ever tried different blades of different stiffnesses um, you can actually tell the difference but it's only along the leading edge and the following edge of the blade when the blade's square and in the water. It's my preference going back to, you know, being on a club committee and selecting equipment. It's my preference to also have a range of oars. So to have some elite oars where they are lighter and designed for people with higher blade work skills and to have some that are slightly more heavier in the hand. And we're fortunate that actually 
older ores tended to be a bit heavier because materials have, have moved on. And so, in fact, our older sets of ores, they weigh a tiny little bit more. But because you have more weight in the hand and you can actually feel uh, when you push down on the handle and it pivots around the um, gate, you actually can feel the mass more. It makes it easier to skull with them if your blade work skills are less well developed. So I think it's important to have both um, so that, you know, you have the flexibility if you like to change the blades you use when the weather conditions are different. When you're rowing in higher winds, it's much harder con to control a lightweight blade. One of the old tricks, um, if somebody bought a pretty high performance blade, but maybe their blade work skills were not quite up to the blade yet, um, one of the old tricks was to take some plumber's tape, some of that lead tape, and just wrap a little little um, bit of lead tape at the bottom of the shaft, right where it meets the blade, and put a little bit more weight so that it creates that weight in the hands that Rebecca is talking about and give, gives the or a little bit of stability while somebody is learning because maybe they didn't want to buy two pairs of ores, but they bought a really light pair of ore, and, and it takes a bit of of skill to learn the blade work to row quite well with a light ore, particularly in different conditions. Um, I also remember some aluminum ores, yes. you know, kind of regular. We have you know, some of those. Yeah, and there were some aluminum ores. They're it's heavy. Really yeah. You think aluminum would be really, really light, but it's not actually. Yeah, I know. So there are some recreational ores out there over the years that were made of aluminum. Again, extremely durable. But, you know, quite, quite heavy to row with compared to, say, you know, today's elite level pair of oars. Um, but, you know, there yeah. are, you know, builders do, you know, when you read a builder's website and you read the specs on the oars, you know, they will, you, you can find out what's the weight of the oars. And if, or if it doesn't tell you, you can ask them and find out. But, you know, you can usually find out what are the different um, specs on a, on a, pair of oars um, and have and have some idea and um, you know go go from there but I think even you know the the level of equipment these days if you're buying from a reputable builder the, as Rebecca said you know the standard of building is quite high in boats and oars and you know if you are buying your equipment from a good builder and even if you're buying, for example, a, a secondhand boat and it's from a good builder and it has been well maintained, you know, boats, boats and oars can stay in good, good condition for a very long time. Which brings us to what I believe is the critical part of durability in rowing equipment. And that actually is maintenance. How you use your equipment and how you store it and how you look after it is a much bigger part of how long your equipment will last in good condition than any type of carbon fiber, Kevlar, fiberglass, wooden aluminium build construction. Absolutely, 100% agreed. You know, just checking your boat on a daily basis, wiping it down on a daily basis, paying attention. I mean, one, it's, it's very good before you go out on the water to put your boat up on slings, check your foot stretchers, check your top bolt, check your bottom bolt, check that your tracks aren't loose because, because when, when club boats get rowed a lot and even your own boat, you know, things, things loosen up just from usage and vibration. Um, but, you know, check, give your boat a quick once over and make sure that, that things are snug and tight. I mean, the last thing you want is to be out on the water and your top bolt flies off and your oarlock flies off your pin. That is not a very nice situation to be in if you're in any boat, but especially in a single. And um, so check. Um, I personally keep a, a small toolkit with me all the time in the boat. You know, a couple key things that uh, my top bolts, if I notice my top bolts loose, I've got something, I've got that wrench that I can tighten it. Um, things that are relative to my boat. So it's good to have your little ore tool with you or what, whatever you need, because things happen sometimes out on the water when you don't expect it. But cleaning your boat, wiping out your tracks after every row, 
this goes a long way in maintaining your tracks, maintaining your wheels, which, which are wear parts. They're parts that you do replace from time to time if you row a lot, but they will last a lot longer if you keep them clean. And just keeping grit off of your, you know, good old, you know, just soap and water, wiping it down and keeping your boat clean on a daily basis and your oars and your oar handles. I think a lot of people neglect to clean their oar handles on a regular basis, but you know, oar handles absorb sweat and they get, you know, they get gritty and, you know, it's keeping your oar handles. It's just good sanitation for your hands as well. But um, yeah, checking, checking things, just make it a best practice, you know, that you check everything when you wipe your boat down or before you go out and, um, we talked a little bit about previously, you know, where do you store your boat? Do you have indoor storage? Do you have outdoor storage? How, how do, is your boat exposed to the elements? You know, these are all factors in how long, you know, your boat will stay in good condition. Um, you know, obviously storing boats indoors in a nice, cozy, warm, you know, climate controlled boathouse is wonderful. <laughs> But um, but even in you know boathouses where there's ne not necessarily heat in a cold climate. I mean, a lot of boathouses don't have don't necessarily have heat. But um, indoors, obviously, a lot less wear and tear, less UV light on your boat. You know, that's that's what's going to break down your boat is the is the ultraviolet rays outside. But um, if you have to keep your boat outside, you know, use some form of a cover. And just if you keep the UV off it and you keep your boat clean, you know, it's still going to keep your boat in very good condition. It's just kind of protecting the hull from the, from the ultraviolet. And um, a number of clubs in Florida, for example, don't necessarily have boat houses, but they have boat racks, which have roofs over the shades, top. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they have shade. So the boats aren't outdoors, but they keep the ultraviolet light off off of the boats um so you know that goes a long way in taking care of the boats and if you row in salt water that's a big maintenance issue if you row in salt water and a lot of crews around the world do row in salt water and you know you have to you have to um clean your boat clean the parts quite often when you row in salt water you have to really clean your boat after every row but you know, have a maintenance schedule that you actually, you know, you, you take the pins apart, you take the pins off, you soak things, you get all that, that salt out. Um, wing riggers these days have actually made some of that maintenance a bit easier because you don't necessarily always have a lot of back stays and front stays. And, uh, you know, the more metal parts you have, the more, the more difficult it is when you row in, in salt water. So carbon, yeah. Carbon wings are wonderful when you row in salt water because it's the metal parts that you need to you need to be concerned about. But you do need to do it fairly. You know, I used to, I don't know, maybe once a month I, when I was rowing in salt water, I would just take everything apart and soak it and get all the salt out of the threads and then put everything back together. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, then you're, you're and the materials too. the better boat. You have the better materials. The, the the pin is going to be made out of stainless. Yeah, stainless yes. steel. It doesn't rust, but you can still get rust, little rust staining that yes. comes from those. So you know, it's it's not infallible, right? And there is stuff. Actually, I I can't. I I know that I have some, but I can't remember what it's called. But there there is sort of um, lubricant type stuff that you can put on the threads. If you row in salt water, you can put on the threads and then put the nuts on. That actually harp, helps guard against some of that salt from things. Vaseline. You know, oh. Vaseline. It's just I a never, really simple. Yeah, um, I never actually, that. Just, Yeah, well, yeah, it's cheap. But, you know, stuff gonna, like that, exactly, yeah. you know. I was going to tell you about UV. Uh, for a year when I lived in the UK in Cambridge, my single scar was stored outdoors and it has a carbon wing rigger. And I have a um, boat bag made of Sunbrella, which is a UV resistant fabric. So I just leave that on the ground and the boat was stored with the hull upside up and I would bag it after every outing. But the wing rigger protruded from the sides of the bag. After one year, 
the gel coat on the underside of the wing had completely gone and you can feel the corrugations of the carbon weave hasn't really affected the you know rigidity it's just a you know a protection factor but that was in the uk and everyone thinks the uk doesn't have bad uv yeah it's i mean it's unbelievable how strong that that it can be, especially, you know, and a lot of people have to, if they row from home, many people leave their boats outside. So that's something, you know, create little sleeves. You can pull over yeah, your yeah. wings, for example, or something. But, um, but you know, keeping things covered, protected, um, resting your boat in the rack in the proper places also to make sure that the spacing is correct for the width of your boat. Um, you know, very important. So, you know, you don't want your boat warping <laughs> or not being supported correctly, you know, according to the, the size of the boat. But, um, but you know, keeping your shoes in good shape, keeping, you know, all of these things, it's, it, you know, it's part of the comfort of your boat. You're going to row better if your boat is comfortable and, you know, a nice clean boat is much nicer to row in than a dirty boat full of sand. <laughs> so that is totally true. So if listening today, you found one useful thing that you learned as a result of our podcast, please join us in supporting the podcast with a monthly subscription. Subscriptions start from $1 a month. Go to fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast. And our podcast subscribers get a little thank you from us and some extra goodies, which the rest of you in the general public domain do not get. So we are extremely grateful to every single one of them. Um, and it gives us enormous pleasure being able to A, do the podcast, B, know that it is appreciated, and then C, know that our overheads are covered by the people who support us. So this has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to masters athletes who want fun, fitness, and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription today at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. Till next week. Bye-bye.